Number one, Purdue in Ann Arbor, where the Boilermakers will take on Michigan tomorrow night. And we go right to the phone line and bring in the coach of the number one ranked Purdue Boilermakers, Matt Painter. Hey, coach, how are you? Doing good. Thanks for having me on. Hey, uh, you're there a little bit early. Is this early for you guys to be there since you don't play until tomorrow night? Yeah, we came in last night just to beat the weather. Yeah. So, and so it's, it's, it's a long, it's a long day when you play at nine p.m. But it's now you're here. You have another long day, but you know at least you're here. You know now you don't have to go through the tough weather. And we we bust up yesterday. Mm-hmm. Normally, obviously we would fly. We tried to move our charter from Wednesday to Tuesday, and they couldn't do it with their schedule. So we just jumped on a bus, and we'll obviously charter back. Um, but yeah, it just makes sense, and you can you can get here, get some rest. You know, we'll obviously practice today and practice and have a shoot around tomorrow before our nine o'clock tip tomorrow. As nasty as the weather is, when you remind me as, of a kind of kid that you'd get out in the winter time anyway and, and get shots up, would you? You know, like whether you had to sure. shovel off the driveway yeah. or you cut the fingers out of your gloves or what? There you go. Exactly. Yeah, you'd have the shovel <laughs> and then you would have the squeegee because then once it would get, you know, the, 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 you're going to knock it all down and then it's going to get wet. And so when it's wet, like people that really know what they're doing, you have to have your shovel, but you also got to have that squeegee because you're going to push it to the sides. I had a full court basketball court in my backyard. Yeah. So you're going to push it to the side. So what you make when you do that stuff is you just make banks on the side. That keeps the and ball from rolling away. Yeah. Too. yeah. Well, you, you take your <laughs> basketballs and you got three balls and you play with one of them, and then you go put the other two on the, the heat <laughs> in, inside on the vent, and then you just keep those there. And then about every five to ten minutes, right, as it turns into that ice block, and you can't dribble anymore, then you go and you rotate the basketballs right there. So it's uh, if you're a real hooper and you're in the Midwest yeah. or you're in cold weather or the East Coast, you know, you you, you got to have the method to your madness so you can play. Yeah, that's that's the system right there. And, it, and you know, parents get mad at you because you're always bringing in the wet shoes and, the, you know, you're tracking in the, the wet. And, yeah, no question. Yeah. No question. Yeah. Uh, are you happy with uh, – you're number one in the country, I, I know, but I, I know how coaches are. Are you happy with the way you guys are playing? Yeah, well, you, you don't sit there and do it. You know, you're not – you know – it's not a pizza party for little kids. It's, you know, like people want to know if you're happy or sad, like you move to the next game and you learn. Yeah. And, and that's what it is. Like it, it's a real tougher deal today because the people that are great at shutting out others are going to have more success, especially if you have a talented team, you got to learn to shut out other people. You can't have your players getting in Twitter wars with your own fans. Mm. You can't have your players listening to somebody because they had four turnovers like they're a bad player. When in reality, the guy who's tweeting it or the student who's tweeting it or whatever, like you wouldn't take advice from those people. So why are you going to take criticism from those people? So learn to be mature and be strong in your own convictions and understand like, hey, we're a team. You know, we're going to win together. We're going to lose together. But we're also going to move to that next game and try to be better than we were. We weren't very good in the second half of our last game. We're very fortunate that we were in a good position at halftime where we would have gotten beat. Well, we have to learn from that so now we can be better because of it. And just because we have a good road record going into this game doesn't mean that – it really means nothing going to this next game. Like, stay on a functionality piece – and say, hey, we got to get better at boxing out. In that game, we got to get better at taking care of the basketball. Like we struggled passing and catching, had some shots we probably shouldn't have taken. They got into transition, 
because we had guys not getting back on defense, turning the ball over. So how do we respond from that and learn from that? That's where your focus has to be. Like, don't let your focus be anything else. Nobody likes to lose. Nobody likes to get on a losing streak. But you are going against really good coaches and really good players in the Big Ten. Like, it's a tough league. So, like, try to keep things in perspective. Well, that needs to be a preventive measure. That doesn't need to be a reactionary measure. So, like, get out ahead of that so when it happens, we've already discussed it. It's like setting your team rules. Like, talk about things that you know are probably going to happen and then ask your players, like, what do you think the consequence of that should happen? And then they, they talk about the consequence. You set the consequence. Then when it happens, especially to the person who spoke up, it's already in play. Like, this is, you know, we are a player-driven program. And, but you're going to collaborate on things and talk about things. Sure, when you have to step in as a head coach, you got to have order. You got to have discipline. But it's not the Army. It's not boot camp. Like, let's have fun with this. Like, let's have a balance of playing hard, getting along, understanding things. Because I don't care who you are, where you are, what you're doing in college basketball, it's a team sport. And if you can't get people to sacrifice, and if you can't get people to check your ego, it's all going to be back and forth, and it's going to be crazy. So you got to get ahead of that, but you also got to recruit the right dudes. And we got the right dudes. We have really good guys, good guys that want to get their degree at Purdue, want to help. It doesn't mean we're perfect. I got a lot of guys on my bench, if not all of them, that want to start and play more minutes. And I want them to think that way, but I also want them to act professionally, which they do. And that's what makes for a good team and a good program. You know, I always think that your rankings are meaningless, really. I mean, I think they're more for fans and, and you know, people in the in the media seats to, to banter about back and forth. But the reality of it is they're there and they're present. And I'd rather be ranked number one than not ranked at all. But I got to believe there's, there's pro and con with that from a coaching perspective. Is that right? I mean, what's the con to being ranked number one? Well, I think when you're good and you have success, you get, you know, everybody's best shot. You're not going to sneak up on anybody. And you'd be surprised at the people that play the game that that don't know a lot about what's going on. But there's enough players out there that do know what's going on, and that's what they want. You know, they want to be able to improve their situation. Well, what's better than beating a team that's highly ranked? So, you know, that that is always going to be there. Um, you should always play well no matter who you're playing, right? But you know, human nature is going to say uh, otherwise. And so I think that's an important piece to try to just build off of things, not necessarily being ranked or, you know, but that's what you want. And, and that's a, that's a nice thing. What you want is a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. Yeah. That's, that, that's what's important. Like you want to give yourself the best chance. You know, we've been in the last six, five or six, I don't, I don't want to mess up a stat here. We've been anywhere from a two to a five seed you know, in the last six NCAA tournaments. So um, I think I'm right there. And so, like, now you, we've been to four out of six Sweet 16s, and everyone would say, yeah, you want to get to a Final Four. You want to get back to the Elite Eight. You want to be able to do this. Well, you, you want to get in the NCAA tournament. you got to get in the NCAA tournament mm-hmm. first. Then you got to win your first game. Then you got to win your second game. Now you're back there. So you don't automatically just start back to where you've had struggles. And we've had struggles. That people says, well, you guys have struggled in the NCAA tournament. Well, We've been to four out of six Sweet 16. There's about 98% of college basketball that would love to swap places <laughs> yeah, with us. They'd love that so struggle. Like, when they say that, oh, you guys are just going to struggle again in the NCAA tournament. Well, that's not – you can say, like, we've struggled in the second weekend because we have. Um, and, and that's where we have to get better. But we got to get there first. So it's, it's good as a coach to be able to understand steps but also 
stay in the moment. Like we've talked about a lot of things. Just just think about Michigan and think about yourself and make sure you have a clear head and go into the next game better because of the experiences you had in your last game. Hey, Coach Painter, it's Brendan. Talking about Michigan and the matchup coming up tomorrow at 9, I think everybody's looking at the matchup down low. Zach Eady against Hunter Dickinson. Eady's preparation for this one, what goes into it when you're getting ready for a guy like Dickinson? Well, first of all, you you know, you get in the back and the fourth. You know, Zach is, uh, you know, from, from getting fouled and being held and grabbed and all that stuff. A lot of times when you deal with that, you deal with people that are gardening that don't have the same value that he does in the game. So if you drafted things, you'd say, okay, we just played a couple teams and, and they had a, they had a big dude that really played well, Julian Reese. And, and so, but if you drafted it out, you'd take Zach first, you take him and then not who would you take after that. Now, when they go to their backup, it's a big drop off. Now he comes into the game and now the tactics start. Like you have to have good officials that are going to jump on those tactics. And they did about halfway and they missed about the other half of them. And it can go both ways too. So like he got frustrated and he fouled a couple times, but he was getting hammered at the other end so much. They just left it alone. When he fouled twice, you're like, Hey man, like you got to call it on him too. So, but other people ploy for that because they have guys that can't handle him. Well, when you play Michigan, Hunter Dickinson can handle him. So Terrace Reed physically can handle him. Now, Hunter wants to stay in the game. Zach wants to stay in the game. Sometimes there's guys out there guarding Hunter Dickinson and Zach Eady when they play other people that don't necessarily need to stay in the game. They're just trying to accumulate fouls. And if the refs aren't going to call it, they're just going to keep fouling it, and then they're just going to muck it up. Well, this is going to be different because Michigan needs Hunter Dickinson in the game, and Purdue needs Zach Eady in the game. So neither one of those guys are going to be going to those type of tactics, and it's going to be regular basketball. But we got the utmost respect for Michigan. They have gotten the best of us here in the last five, six meetings that we've had, uh, maybe even more than that. They They have gotten the best of us. We got a win last year, but it's been few and far between. Hunter Dickinson's a fabulous player. Jed Howard has a fabulous future in front of him, just a, an elite shot maker. Buffkin's a really good player. McDaniel's done a really good job as a true freshman. It's hard to be a true freshman and run a Big Ten team, and he's really doing a job. Learning on the fly, but doing a really, really good job. And then they have some really good pieces that come in. You know, uh, Terrence Williams is a good player, can do a lot of different things. Joey Baker, you know, the, the beat goes on. I'm probably missing a couple cats, but um, Michigan's a good team. They've had some struggles here and there, but they also lost Jalen Llewellyn. You know, they, they, you know, you have some setbacks with younger teams, and you're trying to find yourself. They had a couple close games that they should have gotten that you know you feel terrible about because we've been fortunate to get some breaks in some of those games. And, uh, and get some of those wins. But you've been on that end as, an, as a coach, so um, we know this is going to be a really difficult game. You know, you, you made an interesting point. You're talking about uh, Dickinson and, and Edie and the foul situation. You know, depending on which side of the debate, if you're wearing gold and black, you're saying, man, Edie's getting, you know, the hell beat out of him, game right. in, game out. If, if you're, you know, rooting for the other team, you're saying, how could a guy 7'4", 305 pounds, only have 29 fouls in, in 19 games? I But right. what I notice about him, he never really seems and when you're seven four it it helps you recover maybe a little easier but he seems to be in the right position and his footwork is amazing in my opinion for a guy that size yeah he's got good footwork and um he's really worked hard um in terms of his passing uh, especially when people get him out a little bit where he's not quite as comfortable so the other part you just got to be able to work through him 
the one thing that I, I talk about with all that stuff with the back and forth is you make a lot of mistakes as a coach when you watch a game about what you think is happening and what you think isn't happening. Obviously, you're biased towards your team, so you're going to argue calls. A lot of when I argue, I argue for what I've watched on film that the other team has done. He's so different and unique that people will try different things against him, and then when they happen, um, you go back and watch. So, you know, what a coach always tells the players that the eye in the sky never lies. So that film doesn't lie. Well, that film doesn't lie for a coach, too. So as a coach, you've got to be honest with yourself about watching things and being able to make adjustments and do stuff what you think is right, wrong, or indifferent. But when it comes to calls, well, the eye in the sky is the same for officials. So when they, when they go and they officiate Hunter, they officiate Zach, and they make mistakes, they've got to go watch that and fix it for the next time when they ref them. And so like that is such an important piece. So when people go on these Jerry Maguire mission statements about Zach Eady <laughs> about it, I go back and watch the tape. I don't listen to them, yeah. but it's nonsense. It's like, you know, it's like a politician. It's, it's nonsense because it, let's talk about, don't talk about things in theory. Talk about each individual call and say, okay, you're grabbing his jersey. You're sticking your knee up his keister, which is totally illegal. You know, you're bridging him when he goes to move. Like, all things that they flat out say, hey, these are fouls, these are illegal, you're chucking him. The last game we had two hook and holds, neither one of them gets called. We had a play that wasn't Zach Eady involved. Our guy just gets blatantly elbowed in the, in the nose and nothing gets called. We had three different things that would have been at least flagrant ones, and that would have been six points that we don't get anything out of. And then, like, they got to watch those things and be able to see it. The game before that, there was a hook and hold. Well, we've had a hook and hold where we lost our best big guy for the season in um, Isaac Haas in the NCAA tournament. And it really hurt us. We were able to win the next game, but then the, the game after that in the Sweet 16, we didn't have him, and we needed him against Texas Tech. And that cost us. So now when I start to see these tactics and these people doing it and the politicians going and speaking and saying all this stuff in theory, they've lost their mind. They have lost their mind because that eye in the sky doesn't lie. That tape doesn't lie when they're doing the hook and the holds and they're grabbing jerseys and they're sticking the knee up there and they're putting two hands in the back. You know, he's getting penalized because he's 7'4", 290. Yeah. You, and you and I have talked before about how hard he works. But what, what's amazing, and a lot of people may not realize, he didn't even start playing basketball till about, what, summer before his junior year of high school. Get this. He played hockey and baseball. Now, did you see? Have you ever seen video of him playing hockey or no, baseball? I've seen I've seen baseball. I've seen him pitch in baseball. Man, I I, I mean, now he wasn't seven four then, but still, pretty impressive. Yes, he was. Was he yes, seven he was. four? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, pretty sure he was. Yes. That's incredible. That's incredible. Curveball, fastball. What was he going with? What I was his know. pitch? <laughs> I was look. I was looking to see how he bent. He was bending with his body. Um, how about the freshmen? I mean, what kind of coach has two freshmen starting guards? I mean, you you have figured these guys out. I mean, Lawyer and uh, Braden Smith have just been uh, phenomenal for you. But what a rarity to have two freshmen starting in the backcourt, especially at this level. Yeah, good players. I mean, both very competitive, high basketball IQs, uh, play to win. You know, they bring a lot of value to their team uh, and just a lot of the little things that they do. You know, learning on the fly, you, know, you learn from game to game. You have, you know, good moments, bad moments. And, you, you know, they put themselves in a position where they can play through their mistakes. And that's, that's what any basketball player wants. And when you're not in that position, 
as a player, you know, it's, it's hard. It's, it's harder to, to be productive when you're that. But those guys have come in and, and from day one really done some good things. And they're a big part of what we do. We hear in the NBA about the the rookies hitting the wall, you know, at some point during the season. Do, do you see that from your? How do you how do you help your freshmen um, transition to this level of play yeah. and, and not have that wall, uh, quote unquote? Yeah, you you see it. I mean, you you see it from from all of your guys. You know, you you gotta get your massages. You know. Make sure you get your ice baths. Make sure you eat right. Get your sleep. Like, don't overdo it. If you're you're constantly trying to do everything, you know, you're going to wear yourself out mentally and physically. Like, you know, just get locked into school starting and doing what you're supposed to academically and eat right and, you know, sleep right and take care of yourself more than anything. And just keep working and keep learning from your previous game. Coach Matt Painter with us on the hotline, brought to you by the Mower Shop and Fishers and themowershop.com. Coach Painter, you alluded to it at the top of this interview, the 9 p.m. tip in Ann Arbor. I know those are few and far between, but when you get those, is there any part of the preparation that changes when playing so late? No, not at all. You just you, you, you do the same thing. You, know, you eat four hours before. You do your stuff. It just depends on when you get your shoot around. You just got more time for your players to sleep during the day. That's the only thing that's different. So it's like you don't like it at the end because you got to travel and you get home at two thirty three in the morning because now you got to move on and then we play a noon game on Sunday. So like you would like it at seven just to give yourself a chance. But last time we played an early game, you know, on Martin Luther King Day at Michigan State, we played at seven o'clock at home and then had to go to Michigan State. Well, they played at nine o'clock at Illinois and then had to come back home, and so they were in that position the same that we were in that position. So it, it sometimes the schedule can help you a little bit. Sometimes it can be up against it. I don't look at those things. I look at those things in terms of an intensity and a practice and the volume of a practice. Like, you know, you want to, you want to taper to from one game to the next game to give yourself the best chance physically to play, but you also want to have to be on mental edge. So everybody always looks at it from a physical standpoint and they're right to a degree. You got to make sure guys are on edge and they're ready to compete and they're ready to play. So you got to have a pulse on your team. And uh, more importantly, it's like, don't think about the next game until you get to the next game. Like think about, okay, now you deal with Michigan. Don't worry about anything. But right as the game's over now, okay, what are we going to do the next day? What are we going to do the following day leading up to that noon game on Sunday at, a, at, a, at a Mackey arena? Now you can kind of taper into lighter practices, but higher intensities, or maybe just a shoot around at that time. If you feel like your guys are, you know, ready to roll. Yeah, uh, you got the Michigan game uh, tomorrow night. Uh, Michigan's coming off a four-point win against Minnesota, five and three in the league, uh, and then Michigan State on Sunday. The Boilers, uh, Coach Matt Painter, with us, uh, winners of six in a row. Uh, as as a player, when you were a player, could you have gotten any minutes on this team? Um. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd have backed up. <laughs> well, you'd get in a little bit of run or you'd have been a regular off the bench no no no. i'd, I'd have been a backup yeah i'd have been a backup yeah yeah i'm not better than the guys ethan morton's a bill he's a better defensive player than i am and that's what gets him uh, that's what separates him he's done a great job here last two games he's held the two guys he's guarded for six for 25 he's done a fabulous job for us defensively i wasn't as good as a defensive player that he is 
but I didn't turn the basketball over and, and, and I could make an open shot. So they would have to guard me and I would throw it to Zach Eady every time. So I <laughs> you were smart, weren't you? You do it again. Yeah, I got it to Glenn Robinson and Conzo Martin and Jimmy Oliver and Steve Scheffler. And like, yeah, get it in the game and get it to the best player. It's a hell of a concept. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned Ethan Martin. I mean, here's a kid that was Mr. Basketball in the state of Pennsylvania, I think, wasn't he? And and here he is, you know, in a college as a college player, he's averaging I think four points and about three rebounds a game, and I, I think that's always one of the real uh, feathers in the cap of of coaches and and not blowing smoke up your skirt because there's other coaches that do it too, but it's a real talent of a coach to get a kid, and maybe this is more indicative of the kind of kid he is, who was a superstar in high school, and yet he'll come and do it for the good of the team in college. And sacrifice all the numbers. Yeah, I mean he's, you know, he's a good player. He can do a lot of different things. He can rebound. He can pass. He can. Last year he shot the ball well. And this year he hasn't. You know, but it's still there. Like it's not. It didn't it didn't go away. So like his ability to make an open shot is right there. He just needs to keep taking his good ones um, with it. But no, he's a winner. Like it's his team's nineteen and one. Yeah. Would anybody ever like frame something like that to say? I started on the number one team in the country and we're 19 and one. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else to say. It's like, you know, so he's bringing value to the team. He just brings value in other areas. Yeah. Well, you've done a great job with them. That's for sure. But fun team to watch um, as somebody, as Thank an observer, um, uh, you do it the right way and they're playing well. And I know the big 10, man, it's uh, it, there are no easy nights and uh, you're not going to have an easy one tomorrow night. I'm, I'm pretty confident of that, but I'm also confident you'll be ready to, uh, to handle what Michigan throws at you. Wish you the best. All right. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Thanks for taking thanks, the coach. time, coach. That's Matt Painter, head coach of the uh, Purdue Boilermakers, ranked number one in the country. Bring in James Rapine, who's going to tell us a little bit about uh, Brian Callahan, the Bengals offensive coordinator, who the Colts are interested in. Uh, James from SI.com, all Bengals, locked on Bengals. And, of course, it's a big week for the Bengals as a franchise because uh, they're in the mix for the AFC championship as well. you got a lot going on, James. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a fun time of year. I, I wasn't professionally used to uh, covering games uh this late until last year so i'll take it no complaints here how much interest has there been uh in regards to conversation with you about uh, brian callahan and his future oh i think a lot of fans here uh in, in, i'll just speak for me actually uh, i'm surprised that both brian callahan and luana Rebell, the bengals offensive and defensive coordinators haven't gotten more looks now getting hired it's different you don't know so i'm not going to say oh, well, they should definitely get a job this cycle. I don't know that because I'm not in the interview rooms. But I think both guys have done a heck of a job, and specifically with Brian Callahan. If I were a franchise that was going to have a young quarterback, I would want Callahan around that guy. And it's not just what he's done with Joe Burrow, but he's been around veterans like Peyton Manning. He was around Matt Stafford when he was younger. He He's... Uh, you know, came up through the NFL with his, his father, Bill, and, and was around those Raiders teams in the early 2000s and Rich Gannon. Like, he's seen it all, and yeah, he would be, you know, he's still sort of young in the NFL world, but I think he would do a good job. So I, I, uh, I am surprised that the Colts are the only team, as of now at least, that I've seen talk to Brian Callahan during this, this head coaching cycle. Hey, James, it's Brendan. We had Dan Duggan on yesterday who covers the Giants for The Athletic because the Colts are also reportedly interested in Mike Kafka, their offensive coordinator. So I'll ask you the same question that I asked 
Dan yesterday about Callahan in, in that when the Colts had Frank Reich as their head coach, Marcus Brady was the offensive coordinator, and Marcus Brady really was only a glorified quarterbacks coach because Frank Reich ran everything offensively. So what is Callahan's role in game planning this offensive unit with a guy like Zach Taylor, an offensive guy above him? He does the majority of the game planning. And, you know, Zach still has, you know, play calling, like you said. But from a day-to-day standpoint, Brian Callahan is essentially an extension of Zach Taylor. And they don't always agree, of course, but they agree more than not. And they're able to iron things out as, you know, as the week goes on. And I just mean from a game planning perspective, of course. But, no, he does he does a lot of the behind-the-scenes work. And, you know, he, he hasn't called games. He's done a couple of preseason games because Zach Taylor does want to get him reps. Uh, so that, that part would be something that you'd have to ask Callahan during an interview. All right, would you want to call plays? Would you bring in an OC that would call them? What would the plan be there? But – Ultimately, I think he's seen how it can work between a head coach, an offensive coordinator, the head coach calling plays, and, and a young quarterback. And, and it's certainly they, they've had plenty of success over the past two seasons. So uh, has experience there. But, yeah, that's certainly a, a question mark. But I, I think he would be just fine. And would there be some lumps if he does call plays? Of course, because he's never done it before. But I think he'd be, be ready to go for sure. You mentioned Young. He's 38. And... Um... He's not been an NFL head coach before, and, and we all know that uh, there's a lot that comes along with that responsibility, and it's not just on Sunday. Uh, give us a little bit of background on, on Callahan's personality, uh, You know how he carries himself. What's, what's the guy like? Players love him, and offensive players love him, defensive players love him, has a really good personality, family man, works really hard. But I think the thing that I, I come back to when I think about that you know, just how he fits, all of those things, even though he's 38. And, again, I, I know it's been a lot of young head coaches have gotten jobs in recent years, but that's still young by head coaching standards. But he's going to be able to, to relate to these guys because he's been around it his whole life. And I think that's the part of it where he really, in my eyes, has an edge over a lot of these other young offensive minds is he was in locker rooms when he was 10 and 12 and coming up and playing still and playing quarterback in, in the college at the college level and uh, so he's been around it with his dad and, and now he's he's shown that he can be a really good offensive coordinator naturally the next step is head coach it might not be this year but I, I think it's going to happen it's just a matter of when not if James the steps that Joe Burrow has taken now to becoming elite uh, are, yeah. does he attribute any Joe Burrow that is does he attribute any of those big steps and momentous things taken in his early career to a guy like Callahan? Have you heard him say that? I think it's really the trio. Zach Taylor, uh, the, the Bengals head coach, obviously, offensive coordinator Brian Callahan, and then also quarterbacks coach Dan Pitcher. He loves all three guys. And, you know, whether it's calling Zach the best head coach in the league or if you ask how valuable Callahan is or Pitcher is, he likes all three guys. So I, deep down, selfishly, he's probably hoping that no one comes and gets Callahan. No one comes and them for another season at the same time just me looking in you know thousand foot view joe burrow's the type of guy he could have went to a lot of situations and had success and not every young quarterback is that way a lot of it's based on circumstances and you know the Bengals have done a good job just around him with talent and the right coaching staff at the same time i think burrow develops 
and, and plays at a high level regardless of, of where he would have landed in the draft. Maybe not this good this soon, but I, I think he would have. But, yeah, they deserve credit, and he credits them for sure. Talent aside, what's from someone who is obviously – watching them uh, week in, week out. You're dissecting the Bengals a lot deeper than uh, certainly uh, Brendan and I are because we're looking at the Colts the same way you're looking at, at the Bengals. But uh, give yeah. us give us a, uh, some insight into what makes that attack schematically so successful for Cincinnati. Well, I think they've, they've really found a way to, to morph week to week. And when Jamar Chase went down earlier this year, that's when they really had to, to lean on scheme and lean on, you know, finding an identity on offense. And it isn't just one thing. I mean, they've won with Trent Irwin having a touchdown pass, you know, two touchdown receptions, excuse me, having D. Higgins be the number one receiver, Joe Mixon leading the, the team with five touchdowns. They've won a, bu- a bunch of different ways. They've, they've won with Samaj P. Ryan being the main back and, having 100-plus yards from scrimmage. So I think the thing that we've seen this year is the evolution of this offense. And instead of just a a go-ball offense where they say, all right, Jamar, outrun whoever's guarding you, outrun the defense, they've had to evolve, and they've won in a bunch of different ways. And so the entire coaching staff, Joe Burrow, a lot of guys deserve credit for that. James Rapine from SI.com's Locked On Bengals is with us on the hotline brought to you by the Mower Shop and Fishers and themowershop.com. James, Mike Greenberg's show airs nationally before we go on the air, and I was listening to Greenberg on my way into the studio, and he, he sort of apologized for the show sleeping on the Bengals prior to the year, and then a couple of Greenberg's guys were like, uh, a, a lot of people just didn't believe that the Bengals could be in a position that they were similar to last year. So I guess my question with that is, why don't you think the Bengals were picked more in the AFC heading into this campaign? Is it just more so a prove-it type deal with a coach that maybe folks thought it was a fluke last year and they just needed to see it again? I think that's a big part of it. And, and honestly, the Bengals were such a flawed team last year. I mean, the offensive line was – was it the worst in Super Bowl history? It might have been. And and when you see that, even though they addressed it in free agency, it's, it's real easy to see, all right, well – Jamar Chase isn't going to have a record-breaking season again. He didn't, and part of that has to do with with injury more than anything. But he didn't, and and this offense had to find itself a little bit more. But uh, once you got through the the initial four or five games where they were trying to figure things out, they started to. But I get it. Anytime you make a run, and then the flaw that everyone was talking about during that run comes back to bite you and is the reason why you didn't win it all, I, I think that that was as, as big of a reason as any. And then the other part is the right, the, the, the questioning of Zach Taylor. 6-25-1 and one in two seasons. Yeah, they went 10-7. and seven. Yeah, they got hot. But how good of a head coach was he? I think he's answered those questions now, but I understood why there were still some questions remaining coming into this year. Tough to go on the road and beat Kansas City. Obviously, the Chiefs uh, you know, need no description in regards to their abilities and, and how good they are, especially with uh, Mahomes. Uh, not 100% sure yet what kind of uh, health status he's going to be dealing with. But um, how do you see that shaking out um, 
this weekend with Cincinnati going to Kansas City. What's what's the vibe there in Cincinnati in regards to do the Bengals feel like an underdog? Do they feel like they're the favorite? Uh, whether it's in the locker room or or just in the community, how how are are folks there in Cincinnati viewing this game against Kansas City? People are fired up, and a big part of it has to do with obviously the Bengals are three and zero over the past two years against the Chiefs, and, and really just over a calendar year that um, they've, they've won three straight games against Mahomes. But then the other part is just how dominant they were against Buffalo. I'm not sure anyone saw that happening. And so when you combine those two, I think fans are really confident. As far as the team goes, you know, being an underdog, I know they're not as of now, but I asked Burrow last week, uh, you know, does he feel like an underdog going into that game? Because the line continued to move. And I was like, all right, let's, let's ask him. And, and he said the quote that was probably heard everywhere. He said, I never feel like an underdog. And so he's not going to feel that way this week. This team is not going to feel that way regardless of the betting line. But refocusing after a win like that, it is an interesting challenge, dilemma, something this team hasn't had to deal with during their five playoff wins over the past two seasons because they've all been tight games. And so go on the road and dominate the way they did. I don't really have any questions about them resetting. You know, I think inside the locker room they'll be able to. But I think it's real easy to say, oh, well, they could go beat the Chiefs a fourth time. It's a really, really tough place to play. It's still Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, Andy Reid. It's going to be hard. And and they know that. But I think fans might say, ah, they could just go do it again. I I think it's going to be really, really tough. It's James Rapine from SI.com's Locked On Bengals with us. Uh, James, I want to go back a few weeks, and I know now it's – you know, a little bit better to talk about it since things are A-OK seemingly, but I assume you were in the stadium when the DeMar Hamlin situation was happening. So I just wanted to check, you know, see your perspective of it and your vantage point and kind of how you experienced that. Yeah, it was the the craziest, scariest situation I've ever seen, maybe ever, but certainly a work standpoint. Uh, you know, we're used to seeing injuries and head injuries and neck injuries and legs and carts and, 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 you know, ambulances here and there, but you never see that. You never see compressions. You never see everything that went into that and, and the, the player reactions. And it's just, that's what stood out about that night. And I think it, it's, it's so awesome that he's doing so well and was at the game the other day because we could talk about it and it, it doesn't have to be as, as sad because the end result seems like it's going to be a good one. But, yeah, it was, it was really scary, unprecedented, and, and something I've never experienced. Well, uh, certainly it is. Uh, I think the story has unfolded in a way we could have never even hoped for. I mean, it's been it's, – it's a better result, I think, than anyone uh, watching that night, whether you were there in the stadium or, or watching on TV, could have – could have ever expected and um, what a blessing it has been that uh, to be able to see him uh, go to the game last week uh, I know it didn't work out the way he would have liked but uh, just uh, and who knows what the future holds but uh, certainly looked uh, a dark like a dark situation on that particular night for sure uh, James before we let we uh, before we let you go let's let's do this if if the Colts and just hypothetically speaking Select Brian Callahan as the head coach, and the next day we have you on, and you're going to tell us why they selected him as the head coach. That would be what? They realize that they're, they're going to go the young route at quarterback after going with veterans, even though he could work with a veteran, of course. And they want an offensive mind that's going to be able to grow with that quarterback and, and guide the Colts back to 
you know, the playoffs year in and year out. And, you know, could he work with a insert whatever veteran you guys are probably talking about on your show? He could do that too. <laughs> but I think if you hire if you hire Callahan right now, it's to grow with a young guy because he hasn't called plays. And year one might not be, you know, all peaches and cream, but he's an NFL lifer that's that's going to get the job done long term. And, you know, certainly has more experience than the guy they hired as interim and is getting a second second look so um and i'm not trying to take a shot at jeff saturday but you know and, uh, and if, so that, and if that, that's what i would say yeah and if callahan is not selected it would be why the experience part probably scares them away a bit or or the fact that you know the, the fact that he hasn't called plays which i get look I, that, there's a a big unknown there when the bengals hired zach taylor and i i think brian callahan is much more experienced than taylor was but i had plenty of questions about that and, you know, the Colts don't rebuild. That's not something that they've they've ever really had to go through. I don't think that's just from afar something Jim Irsay would want to do. And so would that be the, the route to go to be able to win right away? You could certainly question it. But clearly I believe in him. I've, I've said a lot of good things about him. But, no, I wouldn't mind him staying here and, and chatting with me for another year about this Bengals <laughs> offense. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. Good stuff. Uh, James Rapine, SI.com, Locked on Bengals. Uh, appreciate you spending some time with us, and uh, best of luck to your Bengals this weekend in uh, Kansas City. Thanks, fellas. I can't wait to eat some more barbecue. Thanks, James. <laughs> we'll bring in Alex Golden from Setting the Pace and Blue and Golden. And uh, – uh, I, I, I don't know, you know, when you've won seven in a row or you've lost seven in a row, Alex, I don't know how you'd call any win anything other than a big win. But I liked the way the Pacers got it done last night. The The win itself is is critical because it ends that losing streak. But it just was uh, in incredibly impressive fashion, I thought, particularly in the second half. Yeah, and that's a great way to put it. I think if you look at how this Pacers team looked in that first half, it really did feel like, okay, they're about to extend this losing streak to eight games, you know, going down into the half by 16 and getting down by 21 in the third quarter. But you just this Pacers team really all season long has been a fighting team that's always done a good job of fighting uh, when they've been down and clawing, clawing their way back. And their first stretch, they were winning a lot of those games. And uh, it was just really good for them to finally get over the hump and get that victory without Tyrese Halliburton. You're kind of hoping – maybe that that confidence from that game last night will carry over into the future because this is a uh, a big opportunity for some of these guys to get more playing time with Tyrese out. And, you know, one guy that's really been taking advantage of that is T.J. McConnell. He's been playing great. You know, and we talked about uh, the Pacers down 21 in the first half, down 16 at halftime. I don't think the Bulls could have played any better. I mean, you, granted, the Pacers shot 42% in the first, you know, for for the game and, and uh, did not shoot the ball particularly well in that, in that first half, but – Man, the Bulls, I mean, they hit everything. So at some point, yeah, you could play a little better defense to maybe make those shots a little harder. But I thought the Bulls did everything that they could have possibly done. And um, thankfully, they cooled off a little bit in the second half. Yeah, I think going back to T.J. McConnell, I think he really got into the head of Zach Levine. Zach Levine only had 14 points last night, and he had six turnovers, and he had quite a few there towards the towards the end. And he was 0-7 from three, and I felt like, DeRozan and Vucevic kind of carried their weight, and I thought that the bench played pretty strongly for Chicago as well, and we had a couple big shots there. But Levine is someone that usually has his way with the Pacers, and he did not play good last night at all. So I think that you're right. Chicago, they got off to a hot start, looked like they were going to be able to pull this one out, even when it got close towards the end. But, uh, yeah, it is uh, definitely 
big opportunity for the Pacers to just get that get that scoring streak going there in the second half between Turner in the third quarter and Mather in there in the fourth. Alex, it's BK. Second half, especially defensively, that side of the floor, what stood out? I, I think, honestly, just like Miles talked about in the post-game press conference, they finally started trusting one another, and that's been the thing all along. When you start losing, you kind of have this body language about you that you're just not really trusting your teammates and not really being connected. And this is what this team has done great all season when they've been winning games is they've been super connected. I think that was a big part of it. Uh, they upped their physicality quite a bit. And I really think that Terry Taylor last night, getting 20 minutes, getting 11 points, five rebounds, I felt like he was kind of a game changer last night for the Pacers. And obviously the stats won't show like a lot of great things, but he's just so physical, keeping balls alive on the offensive side of things, getting the Pacers more possessions. I felt like he was a big game changer. And, you know, he ended up getting rewarded those minutes where Jalen Smith only got six and Isaiah Jackson only got seven. But, you know, Terry Taylor is a guy that's been out of the rotation for pretty much the whole season. So to see him get an opportunity was fantastic. And I think with this performance, it should allow him to get more opportunities. Uh, guy you just mentioned, Jalen Smith, it's been a funky season when you look at his statistics and his minutes playing six minutes last night. What has happened with him from last year? Because, of course, he had the heck of a run after he was acquired by Phoenix. They made the effort to keep him around. So what's going on with the minutes distribution to Jalen Smith? Is it just performance-based? Yeah, I think that's really what it is. And I think Rick Carlisle talked about, you know, they got to try to get at Jackson some minutes too because whenever they put, you know, Miles as the sole big in the starting lineup and moved Aaron Neesmith into that, that power forward position, it was really because you started to see teams change their defensive schemes and start putting power forwards on Miles and putting their center on Jalen Smith. So the Pacers are a better team when they only have one big in the starting lineup, and that means that Isaiah Jackson and Jalen Smith are going to have to share those minutes. But, yeah, Jalen Smith last year, I think when he first came over, he got off onto a really hot start. And even towards the, like, the back half of the last, uh, the last part of the season he was there, probably like the last tennis games, he wasn't great. He was just okay. But you were banking on maybe they found something there with what he showed in the first part of when he came. And unfortunately, he just really hasn't found his footing. I think going back and forth from is he a four, is he a five, what position does he play best? I think, honestly, that's probably been part of the problem with some of the, some of the struggles. But I really think he is a center. And unfortunately, I think Isaiah Jackson's the center as well. And Miles Turner, obviously, is the center. So you kind of have to pick and choose who you play. But uh, hopefully Jalen is young. I think he's got a strong head, and I think that you know he's in good communication with the coaching staff. Uh, it's just a bit of a rut. We saw Chris Duarte go through the same thing, and I think he'll break out of the slump. But I don't think we're going to see anything close to what we saw last year when he was playing great. I think that's a great point. You know, the minutes, it's hard with the depth that the Pacers have. It's hard to provide minutes. You can't provide minutes to everybody. And, mm -hmm. you know, BK and I were talking about uh, this yesterday in the sense that with Halliburton out, somebody needs to step up and somebody needs to kind of take the reins, so to speak, and not everyone stand around and not that they're necessarily doing this, but waiting for Halliburton to get back to start winning again. And we've seen other teams that have done that, that the Pacers have played against this season. And then last night, no Nimhard, no Halliburton. If those two guys are playing, we don't probably see those minutes uh, from Terry Taylor and that performance you talked about. 
Yeah, I mean, with a with a healthy roster, some of these guys that stepped up, you don't they don't get that playing time. Chris Duarte probably doesn't play twenty six minutes. He probably plays like nine or ten. And yeah, I mean, Trevor and Queen even got in there, played six minutes. I thought he struggled a little bit, but that's expected for a two way guy. You know, I was just impressed that T.J. McConnell was able to play forty one minutes last night and keep that level of energy on both sides of the floor. I just think, you know, he's a veteran. He's not old, but you know, he's been around the league longer than most of the guys on the roster. And he just brings it uh, all the time. And I feel like he's really stepped up. It was good to see Miles Turner step up in this game as well. But I, you're right. I mean, with everyone healthy, it's just a hard thing to do to find minutes. And, you know, that's why a lot of people expected some of these guys would get a chance to develop this year. And maybe that's what Jalen was thinking, if they were going to make a trade with some other veteran guys that he might get more minutes and that would benefit him. But, you know, with the way Miles has been playing this year, you can't keep him on off the floor. He's been fantastic. And uh, I agree with you, uh, the comment you made earlier about Terry Taylor. I, I thought his energy uh, changed, um, you know, changed the game in some ways for the Pacers, just as the way T.J. McConnell always seems to ignite uh, the energy button when uh, when he comes into a game. And just changing the pace can oftentimes get you back on uh, on task and and what you're trying to get accomplished and uh, McConnell seems like he, he I mean rarely does he come into a game and not change the feel of the game and I thought Terry Taylor did a good job of that in uh, his 20 minutes off the bench last night as well a terrific win let's uh, let's move forward and look ahead to tonight Alex and and uh, the matchup between Paulo Bancaro and Ben Matherin how much is Matherin using this as a little bit of an opportunity maybe to to, uh, carry that chip in, on his shoulder into this game and show that you know maybe he's the best rookie in the league. Well, I definitely think this is going to you know be uh, something Matherin's got circled on his calendar because the last two times when the Pacers played back to back against Orlando here in Indianapolis, uh, Boncaro wasn't able to play in those games. So I, I think that this is one Matherin's probably excited about, and we know that Matherin is very. Uh, aware of who was a draft, drafted ahead of him because when they played the Pistons early on, you know, he and Jaden Ivey were having a fun little back and forth there, and he was just kind of letting Jaden Ivey know, like, you know, I, this is who I am. Don't forget about me. So uh, I, I love that that chip on his shoulder, that uh, that mentality of I want to prove I'm better than you. And, you know, everybody right now has said it's come down to these two for rookie of the year, and I think a lot of people will be watching this game just for that narrative. But I think Matherin knows, like, this is a good opportunity for me to – prove that you know I belong in that same category and even though Boncaro is the favorite for sure right now Matherin can really put a stamp on that and uh, just go out there and play his game so I, I'm excited to see how he approaches this game but Matherin's a guy that it really doesn't matter he never feels like he's forcing too much he just kind of plays the game his style no matter what's at stake so I'll be excited to see how he approaches this one. Hey Golden so we are talking on January the 25th, and the Pacers have just cashed their over-under win total for the season. Again, people expected them to win 23 games by the time April ended, let alone by the time January ended. So this has been a question that's been tossed around to a lot of minds, I feel. So I, I want to ask you, is this officially, in your mind, an ahead-of-schedule rebuild? Yeah, I would definitely say that. I mean, the way that they were playing early on in the season, they were sitting there in like the five, six seed for a while, and it sure felt like this team was, you know, like way ahead of schedule with the way Nimhart had developed already as a rookie. The stuff he's doing, it just does not feel like stuff a 31st overall pick should be doing as a starter. 
Matherin averaging like 17 points off the bench. Halliburton, you know, jumping into the all-star conversation, which I think he's going to be named an all-star. And then the growth you've seen from guys like Aaron Neesmith and then Nick Sedum of the veterans, like, yes, it does feel like this team is completely ahead of schedule. I was one of the, the doubters that thought this team would be under the 23 win uh, mark just because I thought they would trade away some of their key veterans like a buddy, like a Miles early in the season to kind of position themselves for a better draft pick because of the way Carlisle and Pritchard had kind of came out and talked to everybody like Kevin Pritchard writing a letter to start the season saying, be patient with this was something we've never seen from him before. So I was expecting a, a, a very heavy loss season, but I think with the way these guys have developed, it's really been the young core that's been the catal- the catalyst of this team playing well. So they're ahead of schedule. I think there's still a couple pieces away, but it's really exciting to see this young team already gelling and makes you excited for the future. With the uh, trade deadline approaching, and, and you mentioned that you know there was some thought that that you had that maybe they were going to move some guys. Uh, with the trade deadline approaching, do you get a sense that some of the guys are feeling the nerves of being potential pieces of of a move? Um, you know, obviously Miles Turner gets the most significant mention, but whether or not the Pacers are active in the trading uh, during before the trade deadline or not, it's not likely to be one guy that would go. I mean, if if you put a package together, it's going to be multiple players. So, do you anticipate or feel that uh, that they're kind of looking over their shoulder until that deadline comes and goes? Yeah, I mean, probably a little bit. I think veterans like Miles and Buddy, their names have been in rumors for years, so they're probably used to being able to play with that. But you're talking about a young guy like Chris Duarte. His name's kind of been brought up in rumors of the last couple of uh, news cycles that have been leaked out there by like reporters like Jake Fisher, those kind of guys, Mark Stein. And for a guy that's never been in it, I'm sure that that, that does have more of an impact on him than a guy that's been through it multiple times. So I think the coaching staff in the front office is very transparent with their players, and I think – that does give them a little bit of peace of mind, a little bit of clarity on what's going on with the situation. But at the end of the day, I think they just got to focus on what they can control, go out there and play their best basketball and not worry about it. But we saw how much it affected Tyrese Halliburton last year when he got traded from the Kings to the Pacers. So I guarantee all these young guys, if their names are mentioned in it or they're hearing a little bit and it's not been addressed by the front office, that would probably be a little bit worrisome. But I think overall the front office does a terrific job communicating with their players what's happening. So they shouldn't be too concerned about it. And some of these guys might like to be traded, like we heard about Gug Batadze, to, to an opportunity to maybe get a chance to showcase what they can do on a different team that has a spot where they can maybe get some playing time. Alex Golden is our guest on the hotline brought to you by the Mower Shop in Fishers and the com. Alex, this is a total gut question for you of, of what you're feeling because the answer to this question is only known by Kevin Pritchard. In your mind, has he made up his mind yet on whether the Pacers will be buyers or sellers or is the cat still not out on the bag yet when it comes to that? Because, of course, the trade deadline is looming, but the seven-game losing streak on top of what they've already done, do you think Pritchard knows what he wants to do? I think they have an idea, and I think the big picture here is probably still to realize there are a few pieces away. Um, if you would have asked me before Halliburton got injured this question, I really thought probably just kind of stay pat with this team, let it ride out. Uh, even if Miles hadn't agreed to an extension yet, I think they might have let it play out and at least give this team a chance to kind of show what they what they could do because he did the same thing in 2018-2019 
when Oladipo went down, he kept that core intact because they asked him to. And I think you have to listen to what your players are saying because you don't want to upset the players and just punt on the season and then maybe lose them for the future. So for me, I, I think with the seven-game losing streak, it does give them a little bit more of an opportunity here to maybe be more sellers and buyers. I think it would be a, a bit of a mistake to be, be buyers at this point because we know that it's a seller's market. And you don't want to overpay. We saw a lot of overpaying in the offseason for guys like Rudy Gobert and DeJounte Murray. You don't want to see that same thing happen uh, for the Pacers. You know, a lot of people have been bringing up the name OG Ananobi from Toronto. Well, he can be a free agent after next season. So are you really going to give up the, the farm to bring a guy that maybe only be here for one year? Probably not. So I think the Pacers have to look at this as we'll probably stay pat. Got to figure out the mile situation. Is he worth trading if he's not going to resign? Do they have to do that? I think they have to, but I would assume there'll be more sellers than buyers, BK. What's your uh, feel on Miles? Oh, that's a that's a great question, Vince. I'm 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 torn. I go back and forth because it feels like he really likes this group. It feels like you know he's talked about this being a special team, and he's playing his best basketball with this group and with Tyrese Halliburton at the helm. But at the same time. I think Miles Turner is at that point where he really wants to win basketball games and be in the playoffs. And where this team is currently at, they're in the playing game. They're not a solidified playoff team. And he's never been a free agent. I think a lot of guys like to just test the market and see what's available to them and see all their options instead of just settling in one spot. So I'm still 50-50 on it, but I won't be surprised either way. I I, I feel like if I had to pick one, I'd say my gut says he probably – would prefer the route of going into free agency, and that's why I think he'll probably get traded. But uh, we've been hearing Miles Turner trade rumors for like five, six years now, and he's still uh, with the Pacers. So it's uh, it's definitely one of those things where I don't feel great about it, but that's kind of where I'm at with it. So TJ McConnell, you've brought him up a couple times in this interview, and of course because he's playing his butt off right now in the absence of Tyrese Halliburton. I know folks have talked about McConnell as a – he kind of suits more to playing for a contender as opposed to a rebuilding team. Is, is he playing himself into possibly being somebody that a contender would look at and be like, hey, I'll, I'll give you a decent amount for him if you're willing to let him go? I just think T.J. McConnell plays hard no matter what. I don't think yeah. it really matters um, if it's about getting traded or not. I just think that's just the way McConnell's, uh, you know, He's just built that way. He's built to be a fierce competitor. That's what got him to the league. That's what got him to the position that he's in. Like, you got to remember when he was brought here, he was brought here to be a third string point guard behind Aaron Holiday. Yeah. And after about three weeks, Dan McMillan's like, I, I can't keep this guy off the floor. He's too important to our team. So I personally just think the Pacers value him. Rick Carlisle values him. I don't think they want to get rid of him. Uh, you see when you have an injury like this to Tyrese, how important this type of player is to your team. So, uh, I don't think they'll trade him at all this year. Maybe in the offseason, if they feel like Nimhard, they want to get him more opportunities as the backup point guard. That's where I could see McConnell potentially move. But I don't, I don't envision them making that drastic of a change because of how much Rick Carlisle likes having multiple ball handlers on the floor. I think with McConnell's improved three-point shooting, why it's a small sample size, we'll have to see how it plays out. Um, you know, he's been working his butt off to get that shot together, and I think the front office and the coaching staff are just super high on him so would be surprised if he was dealt yeah i love everything about mcconnell's game and what he brings to it from an energy standpoint and and then as you said he's really worked hard to improve that three-point shot and and we've seen the the fruits of that labor what do the pacers need 
if you uh, if you had the uh, the magic wand. <laughs> yeah, they got to address the forward position. I think both small forward and power forward. While it's you know it's doable with Buddy Hield and Aaron Neesmith right now, they're winning games. You can't say too much against it. But I just wonder how how long you can play four guards with a center. I don't think it's sustainable for the playoffs, in my personal opinion. So that's why they've been linked to like Rui Hachimura recently. Their name was in there as a finalist. They've been linked to guys like John Collins, PJ Washington, OG Ananobi. These are all forwards that I think would help. Just getting a guy that's in that six six to six eight range that can potentially be your best defender on the perimeter and be able to knock down the three point shot. I think that's that's what the Pacers really do need. So it's a uh, it's I think they could trade for it. I don't know if it's at the deadline or in the summer, but I think they could definitely trade for it. And I think there's a lot of potential players in this draft that fit that need as well. So that that's where I think they really need to improve upon. Yeah, I'd like to see uh, rebounding. Uh, there are times where yeah. I think the rebounding could be better. And just the pro, prohibiting, uh, prohibiting the ball from getting to the basket. Uh, on the defensive yeah. side to give up a lot of dribble drive but um it's you know it's hard to complain i mean honestly i mean as we said they've already topped what was expected of them in regards to a win total uh, exciting team young you can't expect them to be great because they're not and you, mm-hmm. you got to be realistic about your expectations and keep tweaking it and keep getting better and uh, hopefully they'll turn in Hopefully they'll turn into that team. It'd certainly be great to have a championship-caliber team at Indianapolis again. That's for sure. Yeah, total, totally agree with you there. Good stuff, Alex. We appreciate you, and uh, we'll do it again. Yeah, can I can I share a quick story with you real quick, Vince? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, so you probably I don't even know uh, if you were if you were with WIBC. I think you were. It was around like ninety nine two thousand. I was in the eighth grade, and there was a uh, an opportunity for kids to call in and read the sports uh, <laughs> sports highlight or whatever it was. I, I don't know if you were off. I, I think Jeff Pigeon was there as well uh, with you guys, Terry Stacy and, yeah. and that group. And I actually called in, and I was able to come in for the seven thirty uh, reading. And I don't know if they have it on <laughs> tape anywhere, but uh, it was just super cool because I remember coming into the studio, WIDC, and uh, I was able to read the sports. Uh, scores and all that kind of stuff. I remember and that. Yep. I, I butchered Syracuse and I said Cyrus and you. And, I think it was you and Terry Stacey were like, "Oh, we like Cyrus better anyway." So <laughs> I just thought it was thought it was pretty cool that you know here you know twenty some years later I'm able to have a conversation with you. So just kind of funny how that all turned around. Yeah, that's uh, good stuff, man. I appreciate you uh, bringing that up and and uh, sharing that and keep up the good work. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. That's Alex Bolden from uh, Setting the Pace.